All right, so welcome to DC5 curriculum for today. Thanks everyone for joining us. Um, so today's speaker is going to be Jan Foad. So he is um, one of our interventional pulmonary fellows here at University of Maryland. He is a recent graduate of Yale Pulmonary and Critical Care and Sleep Medicine um, and joined us here, uh, I guess, in July of this year. Um, Jan's basically crushing it here at University of Maryland, and he's an absolute pleasure to work with. Um, a lot of our IP team is actually at chest and, um, and has also been called into emergent cases today in the operating room. So in addition to um, Jan being a superstar fellow here, he's agreed to step in last minute to give this talk. Um, obviously, there's no one more qualified to do so, given this is the bread and butter of what he manages, um, but a special thanks to him for being willing to step in kind of at the last minute. So, um, Jan, without further ado, I will turn it over to you. Thank you for the kind introduction, Dr. Levine. Um, as she mentioned, uh, uh, my name is Jan Fuad. I'm the Interventional Pulmonology Fellow at the University of Maryland. So, you'll have to forgive me both, and I'm not acquainted with this office, nor this PowerPoint, so if there's a little bit of uh, deliberate movement, uh, Please forgive me, but otherwise, hopefully, we'll should, we should be able to get through this together and uh, get some good learning out of it. I think homopsis is really good because we do see it. It's always a controversial topic in how we define it, how we manage it. The, the people that are involved are not involved in the case, and usually the first steps, as challenging as it is and anxiety-provoking as it is, really, it's if you proceed with a thoughtful algorithmic approach to it, it should be fairly straightforward in at least those first steps and how you get through it. So, no disclosures of my own. I don't make any money, unfortunately. Um, so, the point of this talk really is, one, to define what we think about when we say massive homopsis, discuss the etiologies of massive homopsis, review the management, first, how to stabilize the patient, discuss the therapies, whether that be medical, procedural, surgical, et cetera, and then go through a case or two about, you know, the approaches that have been taken and whether anything, you guys had any thoughts about what could be missed or what should be done in certain specific instances. So definitions. I think you guys have probably learned at this point that, you know, hemopsis in general obviously is a spitting up of blood. Very often the call for hemoptysis is confounded by other areas of bleeding, right? We get called for hemoptysis that ends up being a nasal bleed. We get called for hemoptysis that's actually hematemesis. And so as silly as it sounds to define hemoptysis in and of itself, it is really important to get a good history because realistically, uh, as many times as we do get true hemoptysis in these presentations, we often get these uh, obscuring pictures where someone might have had vomiting and then coughing of blood, and it's hard to differentiate really the local, localizing source, right? As far as defining submassive or non-massive hemoptysis versus massive hemoptysis, you know, there have always been volume-based definitions that have existed clinically, whether that be predicated on per unit time or some volume. You know, people have defined things like 100 milliliters in six hours, 600 milliliters in 24 hours. I've seen 500 milliliters in 24 hours, multiple episodes in kind of the same 24-hour period. These uh, definitions have fallen by the wayside for multiple reasons. The first being, truly, it is difficult to characterize and quantify hemoptysis. Very rarely is a patient completely coughing all of their blood into a canister like you see here, right? They're coughing into a napkin, into uh, a toilet, into a sink, and you don't really have a good quantifying approach to it. And the other thing is it's very difficult to trust the assessment of a patient, right? Is this pure blood that's being expectorated? Is this blood that's coming uh, and then sputum with blood within it? Um, so 
for these reasons and others, it, it's important to kind of standardize your approach to what you consider massive homopsis versus non-massive homopsis. So a better term is really one which causes some kind of uh, clinically significant event, right? Whether that be airway obstruction, hypoxemia, need for mechanical ventilation, or hemodynamic instability. Uh, it is rarely really the fourth one that people present with, right? When someone has such significant hemoptysis um, that they are hemodynamically unstable, uh, then really the ship has sailed in many ways. And oftentimes when we're talking about the cause of death of massive hemoptysis, it is not that they have bled out, but rather that they've asphyxiated. And depending on how sick or well the person is, just 50 milliliters of blood in the wrong place in someone with chronic respiratory failure can be enough to cause asphyxiation. So I think really the terminology is predicated on whether this is life-threatening versus a non-life-threatening hemoptysis, rather than trying to define it by volume per unit time, as this has proven difficult. And clinically, the significance of it is uh, predicated from person to person. Uh, the other thing to talk about is really, you know, what the rate of bleeding is and is the patient able to protect their airway, right? So I think the sum um, reaction for most people is they hear hemoptysis, we say intubate. And I think it's important to take a step back and ask ourselves, what is our goal in intubating a patient? You know, if someone's having a high rate of bleeding, altered inability to protect their airway, and there is an intervention that needs to be done, certainly an intubation is very reasonable. If someone expectorates a little bit of blood, is otherwise on room air, has a strong cough reflex, is young and healthy without comorbidities, perhaps you're taking away their best ability to protect their own uh, airway, which is a cough reflex, right? So it's not necessarily as simple as uh, every hemopsis should be intubated or every hemopsis patient needs, you know, advanced procedures, which we'll talk about, but rather understanding uh, kind of the prototype patient that you might be rushing to intubate. Again, altered, inability to protect airway, high rate of bleeding, uh, poor cough reflex, multiple comorbidities, hemodynamic instability, those would all kind of rush me towards an intubation process rather than just saying uh, all-cause hemoptysis straight to intubation. As far as the anatomy is concerned, we know that uh, the bronchial artery bleeding is 90% of massive hemoptysis, and usually pulmonary artery bleeding is only about 10%. Most of this is predicated on the blood pressure that is associated with these uh, systems. The bronchial artery system is a systemic system that's coming off an aortic root, and thus we're talking about kind of, you know, systolic blood pressures in the hundreds of uh, these vessels, whereas the pulmonary arteries, unless someone has, you know, severe pulmonary hypertension, a systolic blood pressure should be closer to 15 or 20 millimeters of mercury. And uh, such low-pressure uh, systems with a high capacitance should allow for relatively low instance of hemoptysis relative to the bronchial arteries. Now, as far as etiologies are concerned, I mean, we could spend a whole day talking about each one of these. There is every system uh, and systemic processes cause hemoptysis. Of course, people with congenital heart disease and congestive heart failure by virtue of calvaritis can uh, develop hemoptysis or kind of frothy pink sputum that may appear to be hemoptysis. There's, you know, a multitude of iatrogenic causes, of course, whether that be lung transplantation, erosion of stents, uh, any sort of uh, fistulization that might happen post-procedurally. Of course, any kind of catheterization that can cause a vasculature rupture. Um, administration of thrombolytic therapy, trans needle, excuse me, transthoracic needle biopsies, all of these things in tandem can certainly be problematic. We very often think about infections as that's one of the most common causes that we see. You know, fungal infections, um, TB, non-tuberculous mycobacterium can certainly be a cause. There are uh, a host of uh, anticoagulant and non-anticoagulant-based medications that can do it. And as we're 
seeing more and more novel therapies for uh, cancer treatments. Many of these are uh, being seen to be associated with hemoptysis as well. Of course, drugs like cocaine can do it, blast injuries. There's multiple cryptogenic or traumatic-based diseases. Um, we'll very often see it in bronchiectasis uh, as there is kind of a, an erosion of, uh, of a dilated airway next to a, a vascular system and can cause hemoptysis, and that's one of the uh, very common ones that we see kind of opening up and closing over and over. And then, you know, one of the most kind of med school-based uh, quizzes that you'll get is things like diffuse alveolar hemorrhage from, you know, granulomatosis with polyangitis, good pastures, et cetera, et cetera. Now, malignancy certainly is a cause. If you have masked hemoptysis, more often than not, that type of hemoptysis will come from a central malignancy rather than a peripheral malignancy. All comers, when you have non-massive hemoptysis uh, associated with malignancy, something like 7-10% of all lung cancers will have a presentation associated with hemoptysis. Very often, this is non-massive rather than massive. All comers who have any type of cancer altogether will develop hemoptysis somewhere like 20% of the time in their lifetime. And so this is not an insignificant amount of time, and it's something to anticipate. Um, those patients that do develop hemoptysis as a product of metastatic disease or malignant disease, generally the vast majority of them, four out of every five, will have what's described to be kind of a sentinel event uh, where they'll have a little bit of uh, bleeding, cough, and then stabilize out. And weeks later, they'll come back and have kind of a significant hemoptysis episode. So it's always something to look for. And if evaluated early, should be kind of intervened upon because the likelihood of them developing massive hemoptysis or significant hemoptysis is quite high later on. Uh, as I mentioned, bronchiectasis and infection is a, a very common um, etiologic uh, cause that we talk about. So things like bronchiectasis, mycobacteria, fungal uh, infections, lung abscesses, all of these things are really highly concerning. And the images uh, you see in these CT scans here should really be burned in your brain. Anytime someone develops hemoptysis and you get a CT scan where you're seeing things like fungal balls, uh, these crescent signs, you see things like these large cavitating lesions, there's a high likelihood of kind of eroding into a peripheral airway and then therefore eroding into kind of a subset of blood vasculature thereafter. So when you have hemoptysis and you see an image like this, it's really important to ask yourself, you know, is this a high-risk patient and what's the likelihood of them bleeding again? Particularly even with intervention, things like bronchiectasis, mycobacterium, and fungal infections, there's a high risk of re-bleeding relative to other causes of hemoptysis. So it's really uh, a thing to think about. So localization, right? So once you have a patient that's developing hemoptysis and that you're kind of staring them in the face, you have to ask yourself first, do I know what side it's coming from? And then can I even localize it better than that? This is important both for how you manage them initially and how you ultimately manage them from a kind of finality standpoint. And so we know chest sectors are notoriously poor at uh, showing us a source of hemoptysis, right? Maybe at most 50% of the time a chest x-ray can localize beyond seeing this nonspecific ground glass opacity or a kind of consolidated processes from dependent uh, aspiration of blood. Uh, traditional CT scans tend to be better around 70%. Bronchoscopy similarly can lateralize uh, more often than not. However, their use in tandem is quite useful, and so you can get localization closer to 80-85% of the time. Uh, the reason really using them in tandem is, one, you can localize both from an uh, endobronchial perspective but also from a vasculature perspective, and that's important in terms of any therapeutics you may be able to offer. Sometimes you can't localize it. Uh, 
And that might be because the patient has stopped bleeding altogether. And so by the time you get to things like a bronchoscopy or a CT angiogram, there's just no bleeding coming out and you might not be able to identify a source. And sometimes the opposite is unfortunately true, where they are bleeding so significantly from their airway that it's hard to visualize anything, even up to being in the kind of the main stems or the trachea altogether. And so usually in the kind of the more benign course, 5 to 10% of the time you can't localize at all because they'll have had an episode and it will cessate on its own, and it's a self-limiting process. And unfortunately, sometimes by the time you really try to localize it, if homopsis is significant enough, um, it's past its course by the time you really try to do anything notable. So really the goal is being prepared, knowing what you have in your armamentarium, knowing who is available to you and what kind of procedures are available, what specialists are there that can support you, and having a designated team and an algorithm to follow, right? There is, if there are specialists that are available to you that can do things from a, you know, an IR standpoint, and you don't have surgical uh, interventions available to you, then you need to know that up front and vice versa, right? If you have kind of advanced pulmonology team, good intensivists, good uh, interventional pulmonologists, then being able to call them up front to help localize your lesion and perhaps do something endobronchially is really important. You may or may not have uh, all of these resources or very few of them, and knowing who you have up front and what your system is capable of is extremely important. And not just the system, but the tools that are available, right? Not Every um, every bronchoscopist has every tool, every balloon, every bronchoscope available to them as well. And so knowing beyond just who's there, but what they have is quite important as well. And as always, don't panic, right? And with everything, I, I understand everyone here kind of has a pulmonary or critical care background. That's kind of rule 101 for everything, right? If you can clear your mind, know your algorithm, know your background, and know your steps, it's a lot easier than just seeing the blood in front of you and, you know, losing sight of the, the basic steps that you need to take to protect this patient. So initial approach, you see hemoptysis that is massive at this point, right? If you have any sense of what side uh, is the bleeding side, you put that side down, right? And the goal in doing so is protecting the uh, uninvolved lung. For example, if you have a bleeding left lung and you lay the patient on the right side, now all of that hemorrhage can fall into the right side, and that is a um, a recipe for disaster and really quick asphyxiation. And so always protecting the, the good side is paramount because, as we know, people can ventilate well and uh, oxygenate quite well with one lung, but they can't do it with zero lungs. Uh, as far as airway protection is concerned, like I said, I think having a good sense up front of kind of the, uh, the prototype patient you have in front of you is this someone that has comorbidities, is, uh, has a high rate of hemoptysis, is coughing frequently but cannot protect their airway, those are the people that really need airway protection early. And so that's the kind of the standard where you get them to your ICU, you intubate them, and then once they're stabilized and their airway is protected, that's when you take those next steps, right? There's no point in rushing someone to a CT scanner while they're asphyxiating. It's, it's important to know your algorithm and stepwise approach. Volume resuscitation is quite important, right? Uh, having the ability to manage these patients, you need kind of standard hemodynamic support. And whether that be, you know, you guys all know kind of your bleeding algorithms, um, having large bore IVs, having significant access, um, having both fluids, pressors, whatever you need on board, because whatever you're going to do is probably going to require some level of sedation, intervention, et cetera. And if you don't have a preload, uh, in effect, you're already behind the eight ball. Getting them to the ICU, as we talked about, Having a large endotracheal tube, uh, this is kind of a uh, a common problem that comes up because 
really the rush is always to get a tube in, which is, of course, really important. But if you can anticipate and prepare and be ready for these cases, you know that having an 8.0 or an 8.5 endotracheal tube is much more meaningful than having a 6.5 or a 7.0. And if it's just a matter of taking an extra two seconds to grab that tube, then it, it really means uh, miles moving forward, right? So when we think about doing a bronchoscopy on a patient in general, we try to have at least two millimeters of room in the endotracheal tube so a patient can ventilate while you're doing therapeutic kind of uh, procedures with your bronchoscope. So for example, a therapeutic bronchoscope is about 6.2 millimeters in outer diameter. Relative to that, if you put, let's say, a 6.5 or a 7.0 endotracheal tube in, you're going to be in one of two situations. You're going to be trying to jam a therapeutic bronchoscope into that space, either get it stuck or not be able to ventilate the patient. Or inversely, you're going to be forced to put a small bronchoscope into that space, which can be done more safely, but then you kind of lose your suction power with a smaller bronchoscope, visualization power, and uh, ability to do as much therapeutics as you'd really like to. So if you are able to anticipate and have available to you a larger endotracheal tube for intubation, it is much more meaningful. Uh, as we kind of mentioned briefly, a multidisciplinary approach is key, right? Having all the right players is really important. Knowing that your ICU team is on board, you have a bed available to them. Having your interventional radiologists, your surgeons, you know, cardiothoracic, thoracic, general surgery, whoever that may be in your institution. Your radiologists that are really good at helping kind of identify the lesion, identifying whatever kind of blood supply is uh, problematic is really important. Having a good um, uh, collegial approach with your anesthesia team that obviously manages airways much more than we do and really can help guide you and support you in that intubation and those first steps, right? Uh, so we talked about this positioning patient. So if you can get an 8 endotracheal tube in, it'll really help with kind of your suction power and uh, clearance. As much as problematic as kind of frank blood, what is also problematic is kind of blood clots. And so in these situations, if you have find a bunch of blood clots, unless the blood clot is kind of occluding an active bleed, sometimes it's important to clean them because those blood clots are going to occlude airways. So you obviously don't want to unplug something that's been plugged that's actively been hemorrhaging. But if there are free blood clots, it's also important to kind of get those removed. So once you intubate the patient and are able to clear the airways of blood clots and active blood that's kind of obstructing your view, what you'd like to do, if possible, is selectively intubate the good side, right? Um, in doing so, you can actually use your bronchoscope as a guide. Sometimes it's hard to selectively intubate um, just kind of blindly based on the airway dynamics. And you can use your bronchoscope almost as a guide wire approach to pass the endotracheal tube over it. Other things that you think about, right, is that has come up very often is do you use a dual lumen tube, do you use bronchial, bronchial blockers, do you use balloon tamponade? Double lumen tubes in theory are good, but in practice are, tend to be rather challenging for many reasons. One, they're difficult to insert, and even anesthesiologists will tell you it's, it's quite challenging to get in there confidently, consistently, particularly with the rapidity and kind of the success that is needed on a first pass in these situations. Even when it is placed, you know, it's an uncomfortable thing for patients. They'll very often need to be paralyzed. And thereafter, you have to ask yourself the same questions, right? What is my next step after the patient's intubated? If your steps are to bronch the patient, your lumen uh, caliber is much smaller in double lumen endotracheal tubes because you effectively need two tubes to be down there at the same time. 
And so to fit in a trachea, let's say that's 16 millimeters in diameter, you're not going to be able to get, you know, two endotracheal tubes that are 8.5 uh, millimeters in inner diameter each, right? You're going to have to opt for much smaller lumen per tube. So it doesn't really allow the passage of a good-sized bronchoscope, so it's something to think about. So unless it is really your only option, you know, you don't have endobronchial blockers, you don't have large tubes, you don't have bronchoscopes, et cetera, perhaps it's not a good first approach. Uh, and this is kind of just like a visual representation, right? It'd be a lot easier if you can to, uh, looking at the image on the left, selectively intubate the healthy airway uh, and just block off that bleeding that's coming from the unhealthy airway rather than putting a double lumen endotracheal tube in that kind of gives you a little bit less leeway to work with. So once you get to that point and you're able to pass a bronchoscope in, right, what are your goals? Goal number one is to establish laterality. Goal number two is if you can establish laterality, can you establish a lobarous segment? The reason for this is because the more refined your approach becomes, the easier it is, one, for an interventional radiologist or other proceduralist in, uh, has the opportunity to embolize a lesion, right? If you know that you're bleeding from uh, left lower lobe, that's very different than just saying it's coming from the left lung, right? To completely embolize all of the vasculature going into the left lung is quite problematic. Quite similarly, it's an issue for the endobronchial blockers. We'll talk about the technique of using an endobronchial blocker, but if you can block part of the airway that's bleeding and you can identify it to a subsegmental level that is more meaningful than having to block off an entire side of the lung, right? So if you can only identify that the left lung is bleeding and you can't refine it more than that, then effectively to protect the right lung, you're going to have to completely block off the left main stem bronchus in order to confidently say you're protecting the right lung. However, if you are able to identify that it's, you know, the lateral segment of the left lower lobe and you can include either the lateral segment or, let's say, the left lower lobe altogether, then you can get to a point where you can still ventilate the lingula and the left upper lobe. And so being able to refine that approach to localization is quite helpful for overall ventilation strategy. Um, detecting endobronchial disease is quite important as well. So if you're able to find something like a large tumor, um, uh, pedunculated mass, uh, whatever the case may be, then you may be able to intervene upon it yourself, right? Sometimes if you have this fungating cavitary lesion, then it's hard to do anything endobronchially besides block. But again, if you have like a tumor, then you have tools that are available to you, doing things like laser and uh, APC in order to kind of burn that lesion and prohibit further bleeding and even do things like cryotherapy, which can be meaningful both from a debulking standpoint, but also from a clot extraction standpoint. So again, the more you can identify, the better you are in kind of supporting the patient, but also supporting your colleagues who are probably going to take over afterwards. More often than not, bronchoscopy is an intermediary, but not a final step in these diseases. And so it's important to be able to kind of help the patient, help yourself, and help whoever else is going to be engaged thereafter. So these are kind of some more obvious examples, right, of localization. And when you see things like this, you're able to address that a little bit more quickly. And you're kind of seeing here on the left side that someone has inserted a balloon in the right main stem bronchus because, unfortunately, it seems like there's a lot of disease and it's hard to localize it beyond that right lung. So it's better to kind of protect the left lung altogether and include that right main stem bronchus. These cases tend to be visually a little bit more challenging, right? If you get a CT scan like this, there's kind of evidence of aspiration on both sides, and maybe there's blood there, maybe there's some bronchiectasis on both sides, and so you have to be a little bit more refined about your approach. 
Now, we've mentioned balloon tamponade. I apologize for the spelling error on tamponade there, but um, this is really important, right? And there is, you know, uh, a multitude of balloons that are available to you. Some are long, some are just circumferential. There's, you can use a Foley balloon, a CRE, a Fogarty, um, whatever the case may be. Uh, having knowledge of your expectation of what you're going to include is pretty important in knowing what size balloon you're going to bring with you, right? Most commonly, something like an eight French is used. But if you're going to anticipate blocking off like a more sub-segmental region, you might need to bring like a six or seven French, depending on the airway. And so anticipating that as well and having multiple tools in your armamentarium is important. These can be placed and guided in various uh, ways. Sometimes you can just kind of advance a balloon forward and use your bronchoscope to follow it and try to pass it to that area. There, of course, are things like the arm bronchial blocker that have been created and formulated in order to help anticipate uh, that guidance a little bit more strategically. So I'll kind of go forward and then come back a little bit just so you have a sense of what this looks like. For any of you who haven't used this uh, bronchial blocker system, it's actually quite useful in helping guiding your balloon directly to the site of interest. So what you have is kind of three uh, connection ports. You have one where your balloon blocker goes through. Uh, I hope everyone can see. I don't know if you can see the mouse here. Your balloon blocker can go through here. Two is the site where your uh, bronchoscope can go through, and three is your ventilation port where you connect to your ventilator all together. Before placing this in the patient or through the endotracheal tube, what you're going to do is you're going to pass the uh, blocker and the bronchoscope kind of through it, and you'll see here. There's a little loop that is at the end of your balloon blocker, and you loop that around the bronchoscope, and there's a little pulling system that you see at the top left here. And when you pull it, what it'll do is it'll kind of take that loop and tighten it around the bronchoscope so they're hugging one another. Once they're hugging one another, you can drive that bronchoscope and the endobronchial, the blocker itself will kind of follow it. And so you set up this apparatus outside of the patient, and then you connect this port right here onto the endotracheal tube. So now these are kind of guided into the airway. Use your bronchoscope to guide the balloon to the area of interest. Then you relax this loop off of the bronchoscope and you advance the balloon into the area of interest and you inflate the balloon. You want to make sure when you inflate the balloon that you're actually uh, ensuring occlusion it's not slipping out. So we don't just kind of put it into an airway, inflate it, and call it a day, right? What you want to make sure is there's some tautness when you pull back and it doesn't easily slip back. And you want to make sure it's in the area of interest, not including airways that you don't need to include, but engaging in whatever area or region that you need most involved. This then kind of, you can measure, uh, there's the length here, and I'll pull back a little bit. These are somewhere between 65 and 78 centimeter catheters, depending on the French you're using. And you have little demarcations of centimeters uh, at the top of the balloon. And so once you've passed that balloon and fixed it in the spot, you tighten the catheter, you can even tape the catheter into position, and you need to confirm that you know exactly what measurement the catheter has been advanced to. So for example, if you advance it into a space in the airway and it's at 55 centimeters and you come back the next day and it seems to be only at 40 centimeters, it has probably dislodged from the airway and come back more proximally. And that's kind of an alarm signal, right? Because you might be including an airway more proximally and not protecting the area that you want to protect. And so having a really good sense of where the catheter is quite important. We've also found that these kind of bronchial blockers can sometimes deflate a little bit as well. 
And so appreciably, uh, if you have the ability and the capacity to do so, like radiography intermittently, maybe looking down at the bronchoscope and ensuring that the balloon remains inflated and feeling that cuff component is quite important as well. Um, like anything else, right, ideally a bigger endotracheal tube, if you can use it, the better. Um, something like eight millimeters or above will give you access because you are passing both a bronchoscope and um, the endobronchial blocker through it. And so if you have, you know, like a six and a half millimeter endotracheal tube, you will not be able to pass them through together. And this is kind of what it looks like when it's passed in the airway, right? So again, the side port is connected to the ventilator. The top port is connected to the bronchoscope. The, this port over here is connected to the bronchial blocker. They all kind of connect in tandem into your endotracheal tube and are passed into the area of interest. Once you do so, you kind of loosen this loop right here and you advance the endobronchial into the area. So here it's the left main stem bronchus. You inflate it and then you confirm both with tactile feedback and as well visual feedback to confirm that's kind of lodged in the appropriate position. It's not loose and it has um, kind of enough inflation to protect the airway, but it's not kind of hyperinflated and problematic to damage the mucosa. And visually, this is what it looks like. So you should be able to kind of see that your balloon is there. It's well taut and spaced in that region. It's not flopping back. And this is the more proximal part of that balloon. So you see this is kind of the little cuff here, not unlike your endotracheal tube cuff. So you should be able to feel that inflated component to it as well. And if it feels completely flat, that should raise an alarm signal that maybe it's deflated or moved out of that space that you wanted it. All right, so we talked about the blocker. Um, you know, old school bronchoscopy, there's a lot of things that you can do for bleeding uh, besides just putting blockers in, right? So cold scaling lavages, uh, I am surprised how well this works in real life, right? When I was kind of a young pulmonology fellow, I always thought it was silly when someone had like a significant amount of bleeding and I just saw an attending kind of spray cold saline. It really works. And honestly, the vast majority of hemoptysis I've seen or, you know, at least any airway bleeding that I've seen, like cold saline can, can really make a meaningful difference in slowing down significant bleeds. And so you can continue to instill kind of ice saline in 50cc aliquots as you need and try to slow down that bleeding if you're able to. Epinephrine is, tends to be more useful in, um, in kind of a focal bleed, like if, if you just did a biopsy and you're able to see bleed at that site, uh, or you just there's kind of an endobronchial lesion and you're able to see an area of that endobronchial lesion that's bleeding. Usually when you have kind of massive hemopsis and you're not able to localize actively a spot that's bleeding, epinephrine is not quite as effective. Um, usually one in 20,000 is the dose that's most commonly suggested in this setting. Uh, vasopressin is useful. I've seen um, an increasing use of tranexamic acid. Uh, it is dosed, if you are giving it, uh, can be a talcal or a nebulized formulation. It's usually 500 milligrams. I believe can be instilled three times a day for up to five days. Uh, it's quite useful, and we'll go through the mechanism in a little bit, but uh, I found that topical transexamic acid in a setting um, where you can localize the bleed or the region of bleeding, or inversely, if you have kind of more diffuse bleeding, using a nebulized transexamic acid is quite useful. There's also fibrinogen, thrombin, topical, or uh, systemic that can be helpful in specific instances. And then having endobronchial approaches, right? So if you have lasery, electrocautery, APC, these are all kind of um, uh, hot systems that can kind of uh, cauterize the region if you are able to localize one. Uh, inversely, if you need any kind of debulking, freezing, um, 
clot extraction cryotherapy is quite useful. Uh, for those of you that haven't seen cryotherapy, it's predicated on the idea that you can kind of uh, freeze cells or kind of freeze a fluid. So it's not useful if you don't have a, um, a water density that's available in that tissue. So for example, if someone aspirates a key or something like that or a coin, there is no water density in that key or coin. So you're not going to be able to really effectively cryo-extract it. However, if someone has a blood clot, there is a lot of fluid and water density to that blood clot. So you'll be able to kind of freeze and extract that more meaningfully. So what's next, right? So we talked a lot about bronchoscopy, but realistically, that is the starting point and very often not the ending point. Um, the goal of a bronchoscopist often is to localize and protect the airway as much as one can. But realistically, conservative management alone still has a high mortality rate because you have not intervened upon the active bleed, right? So very often until recently, surgery was kind of the standard of choice with hemoxis, but it really had high morbidity and mortality associated with it, particularly in emerging situations. And that's why uh, you'll find more and more often, very rarely that becomes kind of the option of choice if you have multiple options available to you. And really what's becoming a more minimally invasive standard is bronchial artery embolization. It's considered to be effective meaningful, and a high success rate overall. So we'll go through kind of uh, some of these in a little bit more detail. So tranexamic acid, right? So tranexamic acid goes through the plasminogen uh, cascade, and it effects, effectively inhibits the breakdown of clot product, right? So there's multiple pathways for uh, fibrinolysis and plasmin activation. And what tranexamic acid does is inhibit those pathways at early stages, and so clot is not effectively broken down. So it helps to have kind of um, uh, clot more, not clot formation, but rather clot maintenance in that setting. And there are studies to support this, right? So you'll see like a few studies that are quoted here, and I'll show you in more detail. But for example, in these studies, they focused more on submassive homoptysis and their prospective or randomized trials. And you'll see here, for example, patients were randomized to nebulized TXA versus placebo. The TXA group is more likely to have resolution in homopsis, less likely to need interventional bronchoscopy or bronchial artery embolization just by use of transexamic acid. Now, again, these are technically speaking submassive homopsis cases, not massive homopsis cases. They tend to be a bit more complex in those settings, but they do provide some meaningful value. And this is kind of the details of that study, right? So they admitted 55 patients with homopsis. Initially, 50 were screened, 47 of whom were randomized, 25 to tranexamic acid, and 22 to placebo. Uh, TXA was given both here in massive and submassive homopsis. And you'll see here on the y-axis, the percent of patients that stopped bleeding, you'll see that in the placebo group, 50% of the patients stopped bleeding. And in the tranexamic acid group, uh, much closer to 100% stopped bleeding. And then the mean expectorated blood volume here, you'll see much less in kind of the TXA group versus the placebo group. Similarly, percent of patients requiring procedures, the um, length of stay, it is all meaningfully and clinically significant in the TXA group. So we do know that it certainly has its clinical utility in homopsis. And then I can kind of give you more and more data, but, you know, likelihood of recurrent homopsis goes down, likelihood of death goes down. So it is an important adjunct if you have available to you. And oftentimes when I am called to a homopsis case, like if the medical ICU calls me in the middle of the night saying we have a homopsis case, 
not only am I preparing my bronchoscopy set, but I actually do ask the team to order uh, transexamic acid or a thrombin up front. And so those kind of can be like, so I'll very often administer thrombin topically and have TXA ordered and available to us. So a CTHS, this often is, I think can be paramount, um, but tends to be challenging in a clinical setting where there's a lot of panic and a lot of kind of critical illness, right? You guys know that getting a patient down to a CT scanner in these instances is not an easy thing to do. However, it can both be meaningful diagnostically, but also paramount in knowing where a disease is and being able to intervene upon it early. Very often, my pulmonary critical care fellowship, if a patient was coming to the emergency department, we knew they already had access and were intubated, and they were coming up to the medical ICU, we would say, hit the CT scanner on your, your way up, right? We know CT scanners technology has evolved massively over the last few decades, and you can get a CT scan done on the order of seconds to minutes at most. And if you can use a CT angiogram to really identify the area of bleeding, one, it gives you uh, a quick route to go through via your bronchoscopy. You know where you're going, and you can get at it quicker. And you can already kind of recruit your interventional uh, proceduralist in a much more hasty fashion because they already, when they're kind of opening up their suite, they already know where they're going, right? If you do not have a CT angiogram available to you, then and you get them down to interventional radiology, they're going to be starting to shoot angiograms, top, right, left, down, more contrast used, more time spent perhaps look, trying to localize the lesion versus if you already have a CTA done and wrote to the medical ICU, by the time your colleagues are available and the suite is open, they already know that they're going, for example, to the right lower lobe or the right middle lobe. So it's very useful in localizing the bleed, having your kind of interventionalist colleagues available and ready to go, um, identifying possible systemic collaterals, because that is also a meaningful thing, right? Very often, you'll embolize a lesion, and then you'll notice that they'll start bleeding a few days later because there have been collaterals that have been formed to that lesion, and so it might re-bleed if those are not addressed. And so knowing if there are systemic collaterals uh, on the CT angiogram can also guide embolization to those sites. So once they get to that point, right, you hope that uh, you have uh, uh, these proceduralists available to you. IR is generally uh, amazing at doing these things and making themselves available, right? And so what they'll do is once they have the suite available, they'll do some form of arteriography and embolization. And like I said, if you already have localization available to you, and um, both from a bronchial approach but also from a CT approach, then they can kind of gather, guide their catheter to the site of interest and get it going. Um, most often, there's a bronchial artery that needs to be addressed. We do know that there are risks associated with it, right, when they embolize these um, the vasculature, there is a non-zero risk of transverse myelitis causing paraplegia. Um, generally speaking, of course, when we're in these instances, we feel strongly that the benefit outweighs the risk by quite a good amount. But that being said, we do understand that that risk does exist. Overall, they define a success rate of about 85%. So although it is highly successful, some of these patients still do re-bleed. Uh, the re-bleeding can be from kind of a progression of a malignancy or progression of an infection. It could be from collaterals that are um, that have escaped the embolization process. And a few times, you will have to send them back to interventional radiology and will get embolized again. So that is something to think about. Um, 
based on the statistics that we have, like I said, um, although immediate um, hemoptysis is controlled the vast majority of the time in treated patients, recurrence can happen. I, I think we tend to see it somewhere around 25% of the time. Um, but as with most studies, right, there are wide variations. And so you can see literature that gives you somewhere between 10 and 55% of the time. I think most uh, intensivists will tell you that 55% is a bit of a stretch, and we don't tend to see that. They tend to be very good in terms of control overall. Um, and so this is kind of more uh, evidence that supports it, but also tells us that there are certain disease processes, like those patients who have um, active infections, fungal pneumonias, et cetera, that tend to do worse, right? So I'll kind of point you to this third spot here that says immediate cessation of hemopsis was achieved in 86%. Hemopsis was controlled in 72% and recurred in about 28%. And 11 or 22% required repeat embolization, which, like I kind of mentioned, I think we would generally quote somewhere around 25%. But here you'll see that the worst outcomes were observed in patients with aspergilloma. All six patients in this study um, suffered recurrent bleeding, and three or 50% died from massive hemopsis. Aspergilloma was also associated with increased risk of hemopsis recurrence, right? So we'll often see that kind of these diseases, either because they involve multiple collaterals, infection has spread, involves kind of a cavitation, et cetera. In those instances, there are a higher likelihood of re-bleeding. Um, this is kind of points that we've talked about, right? Being thoughtful about recannulization, um, incomplete treatment, recruitment of collaterals, those are all higher likelihood risk factors of re-bleeding, but patients can be retreated, right? Reembolization is possible. Just because someone got embolized once doesn't mean they can't necessarily get embolized again. And so keeping your um, multidisciplinary teams uh, engaged in uh, these processes, even after embolization happens, is really uh, paramount to consistent and continued success rather than just initial and individual success. Uh, surgery is ultimately kind of uh, the final frontier in many ways in massive hemopsis, right? So. The goal, of course, is to have localized the bleed preoperatively because, realistically speaking, otherwise they're not just going to do kind of a, a full pneumonectomy, right? If you can remove a lobe, for example, if someone has a large infection, then that is uh, much easier to do than ask them to do something uh, much larger. So, ideally, you want to be at a point where you've localized the bleeding, isolated, and secured the airway, right? And being thoughtful to the fact that patients need to have lung reserve to survive these things. Um, there is no point in someone with a diffusion capacity of, you know, 20% and FEV1 of, you know, 0.78 liters to go through this large surgical resection, just not be able to survive the perioperative and postoperative situation. And so knowing your patient profile is also really important to this end. Um, there's a high risk of operative bleeding, asphyxia, BPF, and all of these things. And so... Um, Surgeons are very thoughtful about who, what patients are likely to succeed and kind of overcome these uh, high morbidity and high mortality situations. And so uh, candidacy is quite important to consider and the likelihood of success and not dying uh, in the intraoperative setting. Um, it is the procedure of choice for certain situations that are very unlikely to be managed non-operatively, things like massive chest trauma large kind of um, aspergillomas that are re-bleeding and taking over a large part of the lung. Um, iatrogenic uh, vasculature ruptures, things like right heart cast that cause pulmonary artery ruptures, very difficult to control by alternative means. And, you know, hemopsis that is refractory to other interventions. 
Um, another cause of, of um, hemoptysis that we see is the post-tracheostomy bleed, right? So usually if you're going to see bleeding um, that is kind of localized and regional, it tends to be in the first few days post-tracheostomy. The kind of the terrifying bleeds that we see that are associated with tracheonominate fistulas are usually on the order of several weeks post-tracheostomy. And then if you're getting bleeds on the order of months afterwards, that generally tends to be something like inflammation, um, irritation of granulation tissue, irritation of the airway from the uh, trach tube itself. Um, but understanding not only uh, the anatomy of the patient, but also the timing of the trach will also help guide what the likelihood is that the patient is bleeding from a certain uh, situation. So if you end up uh, tracheing the patient and they're having some minor oozing around the tracheostomy on day one post-procedurally, right? Very often you have to ask yourself, does this patient have a coagulopathy? Are they on blood thinners? Uh, do they have any submucosal vessels? Very often we're ultrasounding these patients pre-tracheostomy. We'll see a lot of kind of small venous collaterals in the area and certainly one might erode and it just requires a little bit of topical treatment, gauze packing, silver nitrate sticks, et cetera. There are kind of bigger vascular beds that exist, and you have to be uh, aware of those either in having CTs beforehand, ultrasounding, et cetera. And so if you injure, you know, a thyroid artery, the thyroid isthmus is, uh, is quite bloody when it's injured. And suction trauma, those are things to think about and might take a little bit more work to eradicate. The feared complication rate is the tracheonominate fistula. Usually the highest uh, risk that we think about is if someone has a quote, high-riding anominate artery, you know, when we do these tracheostomies, we try to do uh, the tracheostomy between the first and second tracheal ring or the second and third tracheal ring. One of the reasons for that is because you really start getting into trouble, problems being uh, abutting the tracheoanominate artery uh, once you drop towards the area of the fourth tracheal ring. And so if you happen to trache around the between the third and fourth tracheal ring or the fourth and fifth, then the likelihood goes um way up that your low-lying tracheostomy can really erode into the tracheonominate artery. Similarly, if you don't kind of assess your vasculature beforehand, once in a while we see patients who have those arteries that are much more hydriding towards the first and second tracheal ring, and the, the likelihood of um, that of invading into that space goes up as well. Usually that takes weeks, so we'll see if you're going to see a tracheonominate bleed. Um, that is generally around a month post-procedure. And so if you hear a story of someone having bright lead blood coming straight out of their uh, trach tube about a month after, I would really have your alarm bells up. Um, and, you know, people always ask, you know, what's the thing to do in these situations, right? And so your tracheonominate artery is usually kind of coming uh, horizontally across the neck. Uh, usually inferior to where your trach site is. So if you think someone's having a huge bleed through there, one of the easiest things to do until you're able to kind of uh, get, some, get your resources available to you quickly is actually kind of advance your digit uh, in front of the tracheostomy site underneath the skin and kind of uh, hook forward, which will pinch off the tracheonomate artery. And so, you know, if you need to buy minutes when someone's actively hemorrhaging and you think that's really the cause, that's the quickest way to occlude it and really get people to kind of surgical management. So we'll go through a case example, right? So this is a 63-year-old male with a history of squamous cell cancer in the right upper extremity. It was amputated eight months ago. 
He was recently found to have metastatic disease. He presented outside hospital with, quote, massive hemolysis and was intubated for airway protection and transferred to your institution for further evaluation and management. Um, so you take a look here, uh, and it seems to raise a question of whether there's some kind of cavitating lesion, right? It's, it's hard to completely see here, but it looks like to some degree there's some kind of circumferential disease process, maybe some hair in here. Who knows, maybe a necrotic lesion, fungus ball. It's hard to say definitively, but clearly this is an area of interest, right? So what are your next steps, right? We kind of went through this. If you're concerned that this is massive hemoxis, um, patient cannot protect their airway, they're quite ill, you know, you make sure you stabilize the patient, you have access, hemodynamic management, you intubate for airway protection, you call your resources that are available to you, make sure uh, your uh, bronchoscopist, your intensivist, your interventional radiologist, if you're worried this is malignancy, perhaps radiation oncology as well, um, see what imaging is available to you uh, from a safety standpoint. Can you get this patient to a CT scan? Are they so far beyond that you go directly to something like um, comfort measures? Um, so thinking about that uh, early is really important, right? And so you go through your algorithm. You do a bronchoscopy. You don't see anything actively bleeding, but you kind of see perhaps a lesion right there. Um, that obviously doesn't look like it's hemorrhaging, right? So you see no evidence of continued bleeding. You biopsy this suspicious lesion, and then what do you recommend? Do you send them to IR? Do you send them to radiation oncology? Do you send them to thoracic surgery? Generally speaking, I think most people, given the concern of massive homopsis, would call, call IR pretty early um, to do something like a bronchial artery embolization, right? Generally, as we talked about, there's good short-term success, but about a quarter of the patients have recurrence, and there is a one to six percent of transverse myelitis um, that can cause paraplegia. So when, uh, when someone goes to embolize these patients um, and they don't see kind of active blanching, which means like, you know, uh, contrast extravasation out of it, which would suggest active hemorrhage, Sometimes what they see is tortuous vessels or ectasia of the vessels that suggest that that's a culprit lesion. And so if those are high-risk lesions, what they'll do is they'll embolize it even when they don't see contrast extravasating, right? Um, so this patient, you know, they just saw some tortuous vessels. They didn't see any major ectasia, any active hemorrhage. Um, radiation oncology is consulted. Patient doesn't really need therapy because they're not bleeding anymore. They're not coughing up blood. Everyone feels good about it, pats themselves on the back. They said, we did the right thing. We followed the algorithm and it went home. Two weeks later, the patient has recurrent massive hemopsis. Um, by the time they get into the hospital, they have a PAA arrest. They're intubated. They get a bronchoscopy. There's still that right lower lobe region that's identified as a, perhaps a source of hemopsis. And so at this point, a bronchial blocker is placed. And so you ask yourself, we kind of went through this, right? But what is the next step? IR, radiation, surgery, do you want further imaging? Seems like this patient was pretty stable um, this time around, and so they did have an opportunity to get a CT angiogram. And what they found was that lesion of concern that they first identified was not a cavitary lesion, but rather a large pulmonary artery pseudoaneurysm, right? And so if you take a look here, you'll see that there's a ton of contrast that's extravasating, not extravasating, excuse me, but filling that space. Um, that is kind of easy to identify if you have the opportunity to do a CTA, right? So this is kind of missed on the first go-around because the patient didn't have the opportunity to go to a CT scanner and kind of jump to the ICU. Ideally, if this patient had this CT angiogram early, 
they would have had the opportunity to actually identify this lesion. And so they go into IR. Hopefully these uh, things will play. They do not, unfortunately. I apologize. But what you'll you'll have seen is kind of contrast filling into that space, and you're able to really localize the pseudoaneurysm, right? And so that pseudoaneurysm was managed successfully, but unfortunately, the patient never really was able to recover their mental status. Ideally, right, if you had the ability, the time, and the stability to get a CTA up front, perhaps this could have been managed on the first go around. But oftentimes, time and clinical status doesn't allow. But again, knowing your algorithm and knowing that not what you're doing alone is important, but rather what your procedure is and what your management is in order to guide the next five, six, seven steps can kind of guide um, appropriate management in a meaningful way. So to summarize, uh, really step number one is stabilize your patients and have airway control, right? If you don't have airway control, if you're, the hemopsis isn't kind of stabilized in some meaningful way, if you don't have hemodynamic stability, it's difficult to step, take steps three, four, and five. If you know what side the patient's bleeding, turn that side down. Protect the healthy lung at all costs because that's pretty much the only thing keeping that patient alive. Very often, you'll see a patient in the ICU, the, the bleeding side is localized, and they're still kind of laying on their back because that's the standard, right? And so make sure that you don't overlook that. Localizing the bleeding from side and subsegment, if you can do so, is really important. If you have the time to get, a, you know, um, three-dimensional cross-sectional imaging, it provides a wealth of information and really helps to uh, standardize everyone's approach and take meaningful steps in a quick way. Blood products, um, volume resuscitation, having your resources, your bronchoscopes, your interventional radiologists, your surgeons, all of that, your intensivists, um, you know, your ICU nurses, all of that, uh, people have become very good at working in multidisciplinary approaches because I think everyone knows that uh, multiple tools is always better than one tool and multiple minds is always better than one mind. And so really getting your resources, getting your minds together, getting your strengths together, it cannot go underappreciated in such a setting. Um, I'm not sure if I thanked up front um, Christine Argento, uh, Ed Pickering, and Samira Shajai for putting these slides together. So I want to just make sure I thank them. And just, you know, rule number one, right, in anything in critical care, don't panic, right? Trust in your knowledge of your disease, trust in your knowledge of your management, trust in your support staff, and trust in kind of your specialist to help guide you through it.